Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asia. I am a guest host on this channel, Madhuri, and today we are talking to Claudio Sopranzetti about his new book with the University of California Press, Owners of the Map, Motorcycle, Taxi Drivers, Mobility and Politics in Bangkok. Thank you so much, Claudio, for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you want to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to anthropology. So I grew up in a small town in Italy and did my undergrad actually in anthropology at the University of Rome. I don't know. I'm not sure how I came to anthropology at the very beginning. In Italy, you, you choose your major really early on when you're 18, basically, and you can of go with it. So I think it was kind of serendipitous in that sense. But coming to do work in Thailand instead was kind of a result of an interest in post-colonial anthropology. So I did my undergrad thesis on the work of Tambaya, and I was interested in early not white anthropologists, and he had done quite a lot of work in Thailand. So that's kind of what drove me to the country in the first place. 
this particular project with uh, motorcycle taxi drivers, of course, in your introduction, you have a very lovely, vivid snippet on how you're on this bridge watching these taxi drivers, ferry passengers at the height of traffic, and you begin to start thinking about urban circulation and the role of taxi drivers in the Bangkok urban landscape. Will you tell our listeners how you came to this specific project with taxi drivers in Thailand and Bangkok specifically? So after finishing my undergrad, I traveled to Thailand and I was young and I had a kind of, I think, orientalistic on Thailand itself and, and the East in a sense. So I went and obviously ended up spending the first months of my permanence there in old town Bangkok and kind of refusing to go to new town with this strange sense, I think, an insight of real Thailand is um, this older version of it. And then as I start spending more time learning the language, living there, I realized that the reality of Bangkok today was much more in a central business district environment than in a 18th century wooden house environment. And so I ended up spending more time in the new part of Bangkok. And the more you live there, the more you realize that no matter who you are, class-wise or experience-wise, you'll end up at some point on the back of a motorcycle taxi ride, either to move in traffic or to get delivered stuff, to get alcohol to your house during a party, to get ice to you when it's too hot, to get food when you want to get out. So it became quite clear that actually there was this massive group of connectors that were making the city and they were reproducing the city every day, but had been largely extremely like surprisingly overlooked by almost all academic engagement with Bangkok itself. And so the original idea was precisely to say, okay, we in urban anthropology and in urban ethnographies, we tend to study enclaves and study urban villages or study specific groups. And we make a claim that studying a small enclave or a neighborhood or a square or a market would actually say something about the city as a whole. So what I was trying to do is basically saying, what if we try to work at the scale of the city and work with the people who actually connect it? and make it run on a daily basis. So that was the theoretical idea behind why focusing on more cyber taxis and I will ask you more about your methodology. But before that, for those of us who are listening in, not very familiar with Thailand's political context, what was the political context when you first arrived to do fieldwork? Let me start from kind of historical moment, which I think is what also the book mostly begins from, which is the 1997 economic crisis. So there was this big economic crisis that started from Thailand, and it, it was kind of this traditional neoliberal crisis, large privatization, opening up a market, deregularization, that brought to a kind of crash. And that crash in Thailand was responded to between 1997 and 2001 with a kind of following of structural adjustment measure proposed mostly by the IMF. And then since 2001, there was a big turn in a very different direction. And that turn was kind of personified in the person of Taksin Shinawat, which you know, was a media tycoon, was a billionaire in many ways. It was pushing for this idea of entrepreneurship and running the country as a company. But at the same time, it was expanded very heavily, basically welfare state provision, mostly health-related and kind of formalizing the informal economy, including motorcycle taxi drivers, 
as well as really expanding the role of state, state intervention in the, into the economy. So you're dealing basically with a moment where someone who looks like a complete neoliberal on the side, on the other side is actually doing things that look very different from what we envision as neoliberalism, nationalizing stuff, expanding welfare state, giving free health, giving free education. So at the moment when I arrived really to do research in Thailand was around 2005, 2006, where basically the military staged a coup to remove Taksin uh, from power. And the motorcycle taxi that I ended up working with were people who were very strong supporters of, of Taksin, and especially of his kind of redistributive politics, who reacted to that 2006 coup by starting to organize. So when I first arrived into, into Thailand, the organization wasn't there and wasn't really structured, but it was brewing basically the background that would have brought by 2010, when my fieldwork was full-fledged, to the Red Shirt protest, which was basically a protest that did came up from the port of Taksim himself, but went way beyond just saying we want Taksim back, but largely engaged with question of redistribution, basically, and social justice and electoral justice in the country. So the, the fieldwork itself really sat at the specific moment between the 2006 military engagement 2010 popular revolt and opposition of the government that came out of the coup and the time from 2010 to 2014 in which basically another military coup took place and once again the kind of opening that the red shirt had created was shut down which is the situation we are now while reading your book, I was thinking about the motorcycle taxi as such a ubiquitous feature across Southeast Asia. How did the motorcycle taxi become so popular? Or rather, how did the motorcycle come to be the vehicle of choice for ferrying passengers around in these dense urban settings? Yeah, I think you're, you're totally right. They are very central to Southeast Asia, but they very, very common in South America in a variety of places, Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia. They're quite popular in West African cities. They're quite popular in East African cities. It's, it's a mode of transportation that has to do, I think, with like specific urban forms that develop in, in a lot of these environments. And what I mean is, is basically, I think, two aspects. And let me do the urban aspect first, and then I'll look. I'll tell you a little bit more about the motorcycle as, as a tool and as an industrial product on the other. So on the urban front, I think what kind of connects all these places was the fact that huge urban growth in the 60s and 70s and 80s that many of these places experienced was not driven by public investment, but was mostly driven by private investment. So what it means is that the public and the state or the city government would basically set up certain spaces and take some plot that would be given to private investors to develop and to build houses in. And one of the side effects of that kind of approach is often the infrastructure and roads in particular become underdeveloped for a very simple reason. If you're a land developer, the roads is the only one piece of your land that you're not going to be able to sell to anybody. And so you want to keep it as small as possible so that you can sell as much housing and commercial land as possible. So one of the effects that you see in a lot of this environment is that the secondary road network is actually not wide enough to lodge the amount of traffic that the housing and commercial development will develop. So normally what you have, you have a primary road networks in the, in the cities that it's wide enough for circulation and then a secondary one is too small. 
And once you have that too small and you have traffic jam, obviously the motorcycle become a very intelligent way to go about it because you can zigzag through static traffic. So I think that in most places, there's a very similar kind of trajectory, which has to do with either not wanting to invest a lot of state money into land development or not having access to enough funds to, to kind of centrally direct land development. The motorcycle tax are one of the many aspects that come out of that, of that model of privatized land development. If you think about, you know, the lack of a centralized gas infrastructure in a lot of these places or sewage infrastructure, it's, it's a very similar story. And the second aspect is affordability of motorcycles. You basically are dealing with very often migrants from the provinces who have experience of driving motorcycle because many, in many of these places, provincial town are two wheels, transportation environments. So people don't drive car, but drive bike and motorbike. And in many of these places as well, motorcycles are a lot more affordable, both in terms of buying of a thing as compared to a car or a cab, and in terms of petrol consumption, which is quite significant question in a lot of these places. So it, it allows you basically to enter a business and enter a market with very little uh, initial investment. And once you have that structure, that's urban infrastructure done in the way and you have affordable motorbikes available, I guess it's just a matter of time before someone makes the connection and start developing a business around You just uh, mentioned how most of these motorcycle taxi drivers are migrants, right? And that is a significant part of the story you tell here, the relationship between the city and the country. And you, unlike past urban anthropologists refuse to create this sort of artificial separation between the object of your study and where they come from, right? And you move with the taxi drivers just as they move both between the city and the rural hinterland, but also within the city. How important do you think was their connection to the countryside when it came to their politicization and the ultimate trajectory that the Red Shorts movement took? I think absolutely central in all sorts of ways, actually. I mean, what I try to show in the book is precisely that this position in between these different spaces that really pushed for politicization. I mean, I think one, one of the things that you see in this book and the story I tell, but you see it in the US, you see it internationally right now quite clearly, is that a lot of political mobilization actually doesn't come from poverty understood as a snapshot. But it, it comes from what they call relative deprivation. Meaning, if I have experience of someone that lives differently from me, if I can imagine myself in a different position, that it's much easier for me to develop grievances and to transform these grievances into political organizing. I think what the driver have experiences of, both in the countryside and in their movement to the city and in their circulation inside the city, it's precisely a variety of spaces and relation and object of privilege or not of privilege and an experience of entering in contact with it. For instance, one thing is if you live in a remote village in northeastern Thailand and you have obviously access to images from Bangkok, from the wealth that is being produced and is being distributed and is being kind of consumed there. But different thing is to have direct everyday experience of that kind of inequality system through your movement. So I think one aspect is that as much as realizing, I think, 
what the state historically has done to a place like Bangkok and what the state historically has done to a place like a northeastern village in, in Thailand. I tried to trace in the book precisely the modality in which an even development was created in the country over the last 50, 60 years. And now resources were literally plugged out of the countryside through certain kind of tax system and then reinvested into a city. So moving in between these two spaces constantly allows many of the writers to see the everyday effect of this kind of large policies onto their life and the life of the people they encounter. So in that sense, I think there's one very central role of that movement and the circular migration to their politicization. But I think the second aspect, which is also extremely important and we try to explore in the book, it's also the fact that that position put them or allow them to become mediator and mobilizer of the red shirts. So you, they were able to be in the city and be involved in certain political conversation and then become this kind of vessels of this conversation back in the countryside and vice versa. There was something, I think, really powerful in their position as mediator between these two spaces that allowed for all sorts of political action to take place and all sorts of political communication to kind of circulate. So, you know, speaking of uh, circulation and movement, when you were moving with your interlocutors at some point, you make the observation that on one hand, I was studying how these precarious workers had been pushed off the factory floor and were now in the city and pursuing collective action. And in some ways that challenges so many preconceived notions as to where that drive to mobilize and organize, you know, should come from. So your interlocutors, did they ever express any nostalgia for the kinds of opportunities that organized labor has in factories? I think they did. I think like if ultimately there's something that I'm trying on a kind of political and theoretical level to come up with or to express in this book is precisely the fact that many of my interlocutors lived very deeply lodged in these contradictions that you point out. So obviously, many of them thought about organized labor as something that they have a nostalgia for. But at the same time, they were seeing and they were experiencing as well what they saw as the advantages of living a more flexible life. And let me give you like a very specific example. You, um, if you are a motorcycle taxi driver in Bangkok and your family is up in the villages, in the countryside, you're living very often in an environment in which you need to be able to go back and forth for agricultural season, uh, for harvest, um, for family events. And when you are working, as many of them were before the 97 crisis, in a factory floor, that becomes almost impossible to manage. It's very hard if everybody who works in a factory asks for you know a week of holidays, always in the same week, all together for harvest. You know, so in that sense, there's something very practical that more flexible and informal and precarious form of labor was provided to them as a positive result. On the other side, many many of them realize as well that they were completely left alone in dealing with the problems that come from this labor arrangement to not being able, which I think was a very central language with which they were talking about that nostalgia that you were referring to, of not being able to basically say that if you're not doing well in your work, it's the result of a certain organization. The problem with individualized informal labor very often 
is that it's all up to you. Once you start conceiving yourself as an entrepreneur, then if you're not succeeding, if you're not doing as well as you think you should be doing, then it's your fault. They do realize very well that one thing is say, I'm part of an organized labor structure with which if I'm not succeeding, there, might, there must be or there could be something wrong with the very kind of structure of labor arrangement. While in this environment, that becomes completely taken away from you. It's, it's you who don't work enough. It's you who don't know how to manage your work and be your own boss well enough. So that, that dimension, I think, was very much felt by, by many of them. You're listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. We're going to pause here for a sponsor's message. And when we return, the discussants will pick up the conversation where they left off. In Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasia Institute as one word. I was curious, in your postscript, one of your primary activist interlocutors says that right now the administration is registering taxi drivers, giving them identity cards and so on. Does this increase surveillance come with any benefits at all? That's, I mean, that, that's again, I think it's one of the aspects that I'm trying to, to point out at some point is that the, this idea that a neoliberal turn only implies derealization. It's actually not true historically. The kind of idea of creating a free flow of goods, of in this case, transportation providers or labor itself, it always is paired out with some sort of control or item control. I mean, if you if you think about financial markets, it's true that on the side they're, they're being opened up, but on the other, there's a need to channel the profit into specific direction. I think that's very much what they're doing with no side of taxi life. On one side, yes, it's making easier form of collective organization. There's a trade union that was set up and it's doing some of this work. But at the same time, it hasn't really changed in any way the kind of everyday form of labor organization that puts them basically in this position of being in relation to the labor market as individuals, right? which I think is, is the central aspect of what is happening with precarity here everywhere in the world. It's, it's this sense of you're not anymore a worker, but you're an individual who is relating to a labor market. And that attempt to individualize your relation with the labor market is precisely what is happening. So in a way, yeah, registering them was obviously a way to put control over the kind of work that they were doing during the protest in 2010 to make them visible, to make them legible, to make them controllable, uh, is providing some advantages to or, organized labor, but it's not in any way changing this kind of individualized relationship that you have with, with the labor market itself. Right. And I rushed on ahead to the postscript, but will you tell our listeners a little bit about what the current political status quo is with the movement? I guess what like three quarters of the book does is trying to look of how this everyday life of these people and their mobility, both in the city and the countryside, put them into this very specific kind of political role in 2010. And then it looks at the role that they played during the protest. The last two chapters, which actually were written long way after my fieldwork finished, so it was another fieldwork that I did in 2014, 2015, 
team. Look at the other side, right? When I finished my field work, basically, it felt like I was looking at a social movement that successfully managed to change the direction of the state. And then by 2014, this kind of massive wave that seemed to be growing and growing and growing crash and start moving back. And so since 2014, what has happened is that after the coup, the military government has really managed to lodge itself inside a lot of the cracks that the mobilization in 2010 had opened. What it means in, in particular is A, demobilizing a lot of activists, mostly by heavy repression to their families, and not to themselves. So a lot of arrest, a lot of harassment, a lot of putting pressure on your kids or on your wife or on your husband or on your brother or on your sister or on your mother. So there's, there's this very strong kind of latching of relationship and affects to repression which I think in a way is how I love totalitarian regime historically. And then there's, there's a second aspect that is more specific to more cycle taxi riders, which is it's kind of, as you were saying, this new registering and this new control of how they move and what they do. Then there's kind of a larger transformation that is happening, which is the, the construction of a, of a totalitarian regime that does not act outside of the rule of law, but that actually bans the rule of law and constitutional forces into promoting a certain authoritarian regime. So let me give you an example of what that means in practice. So in 2006, there was a constitution that the military passed. And that constitution basically says that on matter of national security, the military can intervene and change the decision of an elected government, even after election. And if you look at it, the way in which national security is defined is also internal economic policy. So say... If there's a government tomorrow who wants to re-expand the Universal Health Care Act, the military, in theory, can intervene and remove the government because that's seen as an attack on national security. So you basically have the creation of this empty shell of the rule of law or a democratic process inside which basically an authoritarian system lives. And there's measure after measure after measure in the recent constitution that basically sets up that. So in a sense, the situation now is there might be an election next year. It's not clear yet. It probably will be. There's a good chance that the election actually will not affect in any significant way the political climate that has been built in the last four years. I have to ask this, and I'm sure you you are asked this all the time. I don't think it's a fair question necessarily. But the fact that most of the motorcycle taxi drivers were men, what perspective into urban transformation do you think you missed out on by this emphasis? I think there's a number of elements, right? So there's there's things that you see that are true across gender distinctions. So say the precarization of labor is happening to like house workers, which tend to be women, or entertainment worker or sexual worker in the last years as much as is happening to the drivers. So there's similarities in terms of labor rearrangements and, and things like that that go well beyond gender divide. At the same time, it's, it is a masculine environment and this is a masculine politics in a way that came out of it. So in that sense, I'm clear even in the book that I'm looking at the one side and I'm looking at the creation of gender category of masculinity around that. So in that sense, I think I'm missing out a little bit on the other side of, say, the maintenance of the protest, for instance. Let me give you like a specific example of the problem. So in 2012, I wrote another book 
that came out with the University of Washington Press, which was more of an everyday description of the protest sites and what people, how people were occupying the center of Bangkok for those two months in 2010. And in that, so many of the protagonists are women because the kind of infrastructure of protest was mostly carried out by, by, by women for all sorts of different reasons. Some of them having to do with labor structures, so it's much more common in Thailand to have older women not working, either in the countryside or at home anymore. So there's a sense of having finished your free labor or unpaid labor as a caretaker, which frees you out for political participation. So the kind of everyday 24-7 presence at the protest was massively dominated by middle-aged women from the countryside. So in that sense, I think in, in this book, the aspect, women becoming a representative of a larger politics through presence in the streets, it's not analyzed. At the same time, I think like even women who were motorcycle taxi drivers, which there are a few of, kind of pushed into a masculine environment. So they often tend to like take up the same form of masculinities that their male colleagues take up. So in that sense, I think it's hard to see from the lens that I'm looking at the other aspect of this thing. You know, last chapter, I really appreciated you engaging so directly with the question of what scholars and organizers in different parts of the world might take away from the struggles and tactics and strategies of Bangkok's motorcycle taxi drivers. Will you share some of your insights with our listeners? First of all, like, let me give you a sense of why I think that, that was and is a necessity. I truly very strongly believe that something has happened in the last 20, 30 years to academic engagement with the movements and with politics at large. And what has happened is that we, I think, kind of collectively started to think about political thinkers as and, and their, their kind of ideas as school of thoughts, while these always were school of actions. I think we, we're talking about Gramsci, I'm talking about Gramsci, you talk about Foucault, you talk about so many of these thinkers, or critical thinkers at large, like from Lenin to Rosa Luxemburg to the Frankfurt School. I think whenever we engage with critical theory, we somehow from the 70s, from the 80s, forgotten that these were theories that were thought by the very theorists only as functional insofar as they provide a route for political action. That powerful idea of praxis, I think, has been weirdly and really sadly abandoned. So you open yourself, and I think scholars have opened themselves to this position of being people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. And I think that has been one of the really saddening effects, A, of a neoliberal term in academia itself, and B, of a sort of anti-intellectualism that has affected ourselves as well. And what's remarkable, I think, is that wherever you work in the world, when you actually engage with activists and people who are involved in, in this kind of praxis of politics, they are constantly reading theorists and they are producing theory themselves regularly. Mm-hmm. And that theory has a very specific form and a very specific objective, which tends to be historically that of looking for weak spots into the system that you've tried to oppose. So to look for spaces where pressure can be applied more uselessly and more effectively. And that has been the case transhistorically. If you think about struggle in factory floors, 
you think about anti-colonial resistance, if you think about the Black Panther, if you think about Black nationalism, if you think about Occupy Wall Street, all of these movements historically has always asked the question of where is the weak spot? And I'm trying to make the argument that the Marxist project at large was heavily reliant on that, on trying to say, okay, where is extraction of surplus value? Where is exploitation? There is where we can intervene. So what I'm trying to do at the end is basically saying, let's look a little bit from the lesson that these drivers are teaching us where today in the contemporary world, then obviously it's, it's different from environment to environment and it needs that kind of contextual analysis. But where is it that these weak spots are? The argument I'm trying to make, which once again, is not an overall argument that will work for every environment, but it's based on the experience I had there or the experience I have as an activist in Italy, one of the weak spots of capitalist system has become the system of circulation. The protests around logistics, protests in Amazon, the idea of blocking financial market, anonymous attack to PayPal, Somali pirates, a blockage of circulation through the Corn of Africa. I think all of these events, what they have in common and why they capture our imagination and our political imagination so heavily is precisely because they have to do with blocking the circulation of capital, which doesn't mean that there's no politics in the factory floor or that production is not relevant anymore. It's about the reciprocal weight of certain aspects of the system at specific moment and therefore the places in which you can intervene. So what I think I'm arguing there is let's think about this question carefully, both in terms of like analysis of a system, but also in terms of specific action that can be affected. What the epilogue is, is precisely a try to say, listen, even people like Foucault, that we always conceive as this detached observer, if you go and look and read what he was writing at the end of his life, he was himself making the argument that his project was always about looking for it for blockages and weak spots and, and point of, of intervention. So I'm trying to basically revive a tradition that was very much there and that we have somehow given up on. What are you working on now? What's your new project? And my new project is in Italy, mostly because I have had some problem with going back to Thailand. So I need to take a break for now from fieldwork there. And I probably won't go back or start working a little bit more on exile and people who are in exile. But right now, what I'm looking at in Italy, which comes out of a very similar question to what we're discussing about now, it's basically looking at the making of the precariat. So what I'm, what I'm looking at, it's a kind of E.P. Thompson, the making of the British working class. And, and that project had a theoretical background, which is basically the idea that class is not something that exists out there. The class structures are something that get produced through political action. So in a way, it comes out of what you were discussing and asking me about before, which is this idea of how does an entrepreneurial, individualized, precarious, fine form of collective action. And so I'm looking at kind of institutions and organization, a new form of organization. They are trying to produce a collective identity and a collective action around this idea of the precariat. So I'm, I'm kind of looking at, similarly to what I was doing to Thailand, I think, I'm looking at the certain fractures through which one of the most well-organized working class in, in the West, historically, which was the Italian working class up until the 80s, was divided up and along ethnic lines and race lines, gender lines and generational lines through specific policies. So that's kind of historical background from the 80s to today. 
And then I'm looking at different kind of organizations and form of political action they're trying to recompose once again a class around this area of the precariat. I'm looking at house occupations in northern Italy. Now I'm doing a project on new form of labor organizing in trade unions in Rome. And then I'll move to the south for a project on migrants, Italian agricultural cooperatives that are being set up. That sounds like a fascinating project. We wish you all the very best from the New Books Network. Thank you so much for joining us. That was Claudio Sopranzetti talking about his new book, Owners of the Map, Motorcycle, Taxi Drivers, Mobility and Politics in Bangkok. Thank you so much again. All the very best for your new work and take care. Thank you very much for having me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.